Amen. And it is our desire to wake in the likeness of uh, Jesus Christ. And uh, one day we will. Those of us who are believers, when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. Amen. Why don't you take your Bibles with me and uh, open up to the book of Daniel. We're back in the book of Daniel uh, today, this Sunday. And uh, as we turn our attention uh, to Daniel chapter 6, uh, we're taking a look at uh, one of the most well-known and most beloved stories in all of Scripture and definitely in the book of, of Daniel. Uh, if you don't know anything else about Daniel, you know about this. And if we were to, to do any kind of word association and uh, I had you fill in the blank and we said Daniel and, we'd all come up with the same answer. We're all going to think about the, the lion's den. Daniel and the lion's den. It's the, the most familiar of all the stories of Daniel and most of us, even if we didn't grow up in a Christian household, we've at least heard about this one. We've at least heard about the man who spent a night in a, in a, in a lion's den and left without a scratch. It's the kind of stories uh, that uh, fill children's books and flannel graphs. You know, that's what flannel graphs were made for, to tell the story of, of Daniel. Some of you don't even know what a flannel graph is. But before the, the smartphone, there was the flannel graph. And a flannel graph board where you could uh, stick the different figures onto the board and uh, make whatever story you wanted to, and, uh, and that's what we did in, in Sunday school. Uh, but uh, those were great memories as, as a child, to think about these stories about what the Lord did. And although Daniel was rescued from the, the lion's den, he still seems to be trapped in the children's books and on the flannel graph, because uh, Daniel 6 is much more than just a children's story. We, we can't just leave him there. Daniel 6 is more than just a children's story, and I'm afraid that we often miss the point in the midst of all that we think that we know about Daniel chapter 6. And as is often the case, the point of the story is at the end of the story. So let's go to the end of chapter 6, because I want you to know where all of this is heading. All this is heading to the end of Daniel chapter 6. Take a look at verse 25. Verse 25, it says, Then Darius... The king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And his kingdom, his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. That's where it's all heading. It's, it's all heading towards the living God who endures forever, whose kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. And the rescuing of Daniel from the lion's den is just to illustrate that point, that this is the God who's overall. This is the God who has dominion. Men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. That's the main point of Daniel chapter 6. It's not merely follow Daniel's example. You know, be like a Daniel. Was Daniel a great servant that was worthy of imitation? Absolutely. And there's nothing wrong with imitating the, the faith of faithful men. That's what we're instructed to do throughout the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, I exhort you, therefore, be imitators of me. And he can only say that because he walks in the footsteps of Christ. Imitate me as I follow Christ. 
1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. Later on in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9, he says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We need to live lives worthy of imitation. We need to find those who are worthy of imitating. The author of Hebrews reminds us in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 12, that we're to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Be imitators of those who have faith. And that's a legitimate application of Daniel chapter 6, that we're to imitate the faith of men like Daniel, but it's not the main point. It's not the main point. The main point of Daniel chapter 6 is not to be strong in faith. That's another application that we can rightfully draw out of this great narrative. And that's the aspect that's highlighted in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is known as the the hall of of faith. And we find these words in verse 32 and 33 of Hebrews chapter 11, where the author says, and what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, referring to, to Daniel. And then verse 23 of Daniel chapter 6, it lets us know that Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury was found in him because he had trusted in his God. We're to be strong in faith. But again, that's not the the main point. Daniel's a a model of strong and resilient faith in God, but and there's no question that we can learn from him, but that's not the main point. The main point is the God that Daniel trusted in. It's not, not the faith of Daniel, it's the God that he placed his faith in. The main point of Daniel 6 is not even to be courageous. You know, the, the veggie tales Daniel who answers the question, where's God when I'm scared? Daniel was an example of courage. And after he learned the, the prohibition on, on prayer was put into law, the very first act that he, that he did after he found out that it was against the law was to pray. That's, that's an example of an iron will. He was courageous in the face of danger. And it's amazing to see how many times Throughout the, the scripture, the people of God are called on to be courageous, to be strong. And all of these lessons are lessons that we can learn from Daniel chapter 6. But if we miss the, the point at the end, we're missing the main point. The, the main point is that I make a decree in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. The main point of Daniel chapter 6 isn't about Daniel, it's about Daniel's God. And the question I have for you today is, do you fear and tremble before this God? Do you fear and tremble before the God of Daniel? Because he is the living God and his kingdom endures forever. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. His dominion will be forever. And that's the point that King Darius Darius walked away from the den with. And that's the point that Daniel wants us to walk away with. It's not where is God when I'm afraid, but who's afraid of my God? (laughs) You know, put the perspective back where it needs to be. It's on who God is. It's on God. Do you fear and tremble before this sovereign God? And that's a lost concept in our church today. We've gone far from where the biblical accounts would point us. We've done our fair share to take the teeth and the claws out of statements like this. Who is trembling before our sovereign God? People don't fear and tremble before God. When people talk about the biblical concept of fear, they speak about reverence and respect and esteem but that's not what the original audience would have understood by fear and trembling. The fear and trembling, that's not all that King Darius would have understood by fear and trembling. 
The same exact phrase, fear and trembling, is used over in Daniel chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, where Daniel speaks of Belshazzar and he speaks about his father, Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel chapter 5, verses 18 and, and 19, listen to what he says over here. He says, uh, O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Listen to this. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. Their idea of fear and trembling was, this guy is in charge of my life. Whatever he wants to do, he can do it. If he wants to elevate me, he can elevate me. If he wants to humble me, he'll humble me. If he wants me to be kept alive, he'll keep me alive. If he wants me to be put to death, he can put me to death because he's in total control. My life is in his hands. And that's the idea that we need to have as we come before God. My life is in his hands. I need to fear and tremble before this God. The Aramaic word for fear, the call, it means dreadful, fearful, awful. The, the old word for, for awesome was, was awful. You know, something that fills you with awe. I'm full of awe. They called it awful. And God is truly awful, full of awe. He fills our hearts with awe, wonder, amazement. When we talk about God, he is the, the truly awesome one. The Aramaic word for tremble, zua, it means just what it says. The translation says to tremble, to quake, to shake. It's what makes your, your hands unsteady, your voice to quiver, your knees to knock. This is the, the God with whom we have to do. And the people of Babylon would have been terrified of crossing Nebuchadnezzar. Their, their knees would have knocked together to, to think about crossing Nebuchadnezzar. He could kill who he wanted. He could spare who he wanted. No one would have received the kind of respect that King Nebuchadnezzar had. And no one should receive the kind of respect that our God deserves. Amen? This is the God that we come before, that we fear and tremble before. And to this eternal, immutable God, the God who controls all the kingdoms of the earth, this is the God that we come before. And this is the God that we are pointing to today. Isaiah forty fifteen says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket before him. <laughs> what, what does that mean? It means it's of no consequence. You know, you carry a, a bucket of water and you drop a splash a little drop on the side. You don't go back to fill up the, the drop. It's like, it's, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Isaiah says the nations are like a drop from a bucket. The ancients measured the weights on a scale. And he says the nations are like, like dust on the scales. It's It's inconsequential. It's not even registering. It makes no difference compared to the the sovereignty of Almighty God. Whatever the nations are doing doesn't matter to God. God will have his way. All the nations before him are nothing. God is to be feared above any king. And I want to submit to you that the reason we know about Daniel's example and Daniel's faith and Daniel's courage is because of Daniel's God and because Daniel feared this God. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, they have no more that they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. I tell you, fear him. Do you have a healthy fear of a sovereign God? Uh, a small view of a weak God will not fortify you and strengthen you when you're standing alone in a den of lions. You, you need to have a great God for a time like that, don't you? You need to trust in a great God. And only a big view of a sovereign God is sufficient to help you to stand. If you're going to stand in the day of adversity, you need to fear God 
more than you fear a group of people not including you, more than you fear your coworkers betraying you, more than you fear your family not speaking to you. We heard it today in the testimony of our sister. Your enemies persecuting you, you need to fear God more than that, or a pack of lions eating you. You need to fear God more than anything. Disobeying God has to be more fearful to you than anything. And what we're going to learn in this passage today is, are the results of fearing a sovereign God. If you fear a sovereign God, your life doesn't blend in, your integrity doesn't bend over, your character doesn't buckle under, your faith doesn't break down, and your light does not blow out. Uh, but before we get into our outline, let me just remind you of where we were in Daniel, because it's been a while since we've been here. The Babylonian Empire was the, the superpower for almost 100 years and just recently was defeated by the Medo-Persian Empire. And Daniel has the, the front row seat to watch everything happen. He was there in, in Babylon when uh, Babylon rose to power and, and flexed their muscles over Palestine. Uh, most commentators believe he was uh, somewhere in his mid to late teens when he first arrived in Babylon in 605 BC. He was part of that first uh, deportation. Uh, he was there when Jerusalem was destroyed in 586 BC, he heard about the temple being destroyed, saw the treasures that would have been removed from the holy place and taken to Babylon. Uh, some of the vessels of the Lord were being used as party cups by King Belshazzar and his guests. Daniel was there for all of that. He was also there when Babylon was conquered in 539 by Medo-Persia. And if you do the math, if Daniel was in his mid-teens in 605 BC, and now it's 539 BC, Daniel is now in his mid-80s at this point. This is, a, this is an old man, or as we like to say here at BBC, this is a seasoned saint. You know, he's, he's, he's advanced in years by this point. He's watched the kingdoms come and go, rise and fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Back in Daniel 5, he saw the handwriting on the wall, let Belshazzar know that his kingdom was coming to an end, it's going to be given to another the head of gold, which was Babylon, which was referred to in Daniel chapter 2, was giving way to the breast and arms of silver, which was the Medo-Persian empire. And according to one historian, Herodotus, uh, the Medo-Persian army gained entry into Babylon by diverting the, the waters of the Euphrates River. And when the water level was low enough, they snuck right in underneath the water gate, went right into Babylon and defeated Babylon without firing a shot. The word of our God stands forever. <laughs> Just like Daniel said it would happen, it happened. The Psalm 115 verse 3 says, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Yes. Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And that's really the message that, that Daniel wants to encourage these Jews in captivity with. The, the powers that exist don't have the final say. God does. God has the final say. Earth does not rule. Hell does not rule. Heaven rules. Heaven rules. Daniel 4.17 says, The Most High is the ruler over the realms of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. The sovereignty of God is demonstrated by the superiority of his kingdom over the kingdoms of men. And everywhere you turn in the book of, of Daniel, the nations of the earth are revealed to be nothing more than the chess pieces that God moves at his own pleasure. You may be a king or a queen, but, but God is the hand that's moving you. God can set you up or God can take you out. And this is the God that you're to fear. And if you have a fear for God like this, your life will not blend in with the society around you. You won't even have the desire to blend in because you want to stand on the Lord's side. Let's take a look at Daniel chapter six, 
starting at verse 1. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit, and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs, but they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. Inasmuch as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him, then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and Father, we are grateful for your word. Father, we pray that you would help us to to fear and tremble before you. Lord, even in the book of Philippians, it speaks about how we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Father, we come before you with awe because you are the sovereign one. You are the one who's in control of absolutely every detail of life. Father, you're also a a good and a gracious God. And Father, we learn that in the life of Daniel. We learn that in the life of every one of your saints, Lord, that you have a meticulous providence, that you work out every detail of our lives. And Father, we're grateful that we can rest in you. Now, Father, I pray that you'd help us to have a, a true perception of who you are. And I pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Do you fear this sovereign God. And if you do have a fear for this God, your life won't blend in with those around you. Back in uh, Daniel chapter 5, verses 30 to 31, we learned that the kingdom that was once Babylon was toppled over by the Medo-Persian empire. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. And the the question is, who is this, this Darius the Mede? Because we don't really have any record of him outside of the scripture. And those who attack the trustworthiness of the, the Scripture, they say, well, if, if we can't find him out of, outside of the Scripture, then he doesn't exist. But that's the same thing that the critics said about Belshazzar until an archaeological excavation unearthed a tablet that bore his name. And then the, the critics crawled back into the holes that they came out of uh, because, again, they, they've been embarrassed with their tail between their legs. You know, just because you haven't dug in the earth long enough to find a name doesn't give you reason to doubt the biblical record. And beyond that, there's several explanations for who this Darius the Mede could have been. One possible explanation is that Darius is just another name for Cyrus, who's mentioned down in verse 28. Down in verse uh, 28, it says, So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And uh, some believe that that word and could be translated even, even the reign of Cyrus the Persian, and that Darius is just another name for, for Cyrus. And it was uh, common for kings to have more than, than one name, and we find that all throughout uh, the scriptures. But there's a, another possibility that I, I think is, is more likely. I think that the evidence leans toward seeing Darius as another name for a, a man by the name of Gubaru. According to a Babylonian record known as the Nabonidus Chronicle, it gives an account of the same period of time, and it records that Cyrus entered Babylon And when he entered Babylon, green twigs were spread in front of him. A state of peace was imposed upon the city. And Gabaru, his governor, 
installed sub-governors in Babylon. You know, these, these people, these governors that would kind of oversee the affairs of the Babylonian kingdom. And that's exactly what we have in chapter 6 and verse 1, that it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. So I believe that the actions fit this Gubaru that we do know from, from history and uh, that he, his first order of business was to install these sub-governors who would rule the, the, the land underneath him. So it could be possible that this Darius could be a, a, another name for Cyrus, another name for this Gubaru. Uh, but uh, either way, it, it makes sense of what we know from the, the history and the biblical uh, context. So here we have this, this vice ruler, uh, who I believe is uh, Gubaru, this Darius, who takes control of Babylon underneath Cyrus, and his first order of business is to try to set everything in order, to try to organize the kingdom. And he enlists the help of these sub-governors to keep it under control. And it was customary for the, the Persians to develop a, a friendly relationship with the nations that they, they conquered. And they would often use the people who were already in power to try to bring order to the rest of the people who they were already subjugating. So when they conquered Babylon, they would have selected people that they believed were already recognized as leaders. And when the Medo-Persian empire came into Babylon, who was there dressed in purple with the gold chain around his neck, who was already identified as the, the third ruler in Babylon. Who was that? Daniel. <laughs> so here you have Daniel. As they enter in, they say, well, I mean, if we're looking for a leader, here he is. He's dressed in purple with, with the chain of gold. I mean, this is our man. He was already recognized as the third ruler in the, 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 the empire, so let's recognize him. So in the providence of God, Daniel was picked to be one of these high officials or commissioners, presidents or, or chiefs over a group of 120 satraps. So these governors, princes of the kingdom, these kingdom protectors were overseen by three presidents or commissioners. And the purpose was to secure the allegiance of the, the people and Daniel was recognized as first in line. So you have this, this kind of pyramid structure, 120 overseen by three, and Daniel is distinguished among the three. Look at verse three again. It says, then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Literally, it means that the Daniel was above, literally above. If you remember, Daniel and his, uh, his friends were considered 10 times better than any of the other peers that they had, both physically and mentally. Uh, back in chapter one, Daniel and his friends were seen as 10 times better than all of the, uh, uh, the advisors to the king. And it says here that he possessed this extraordinary spirit. And what does that mean? Back in uh, chapter five and verse 12, uh, Daniel was recommended to interpret Belshazzar's dream and, and similar language is used about him back then that he has this extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams was given to him. He could solve difficult problems. And that's what's said about Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. So now Daniel is summoned and really declared to be first over the, uh, the, the kingdom, over these three who were over the kingdom. This is who Daniel is declared to be. He sets himself apart. And the only explanation that they can come up with is that he has this extraordinary spirit. It's supernatural. There, there's something divine about Daniel. They call it the, the spirit of the gods is in him. You know, Daniel's work bore testimony to the presence of the Spirit of God, and you can mark this as a reference, an Old Testament reference for the Holy Spirit, that, that the Spirit of God was at work even before Pentecost, and here, marking out Daniel as a chosen instrument of God, and it showed up 
in the way that he performed his responsibilities. The fear of man can't produce this superior kind of work ethic. You know, the other governors had a, had a fear of, of man. They desired to be noticed by men. You can't, can't explain this just by the, the, the desire to be noticed by men. It's only the, the spirit of God, the fear of God that produces this kind of superior work, which is exactly what uh, the book of Colossians points out. Colossians chapter three, where it says, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external services, those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. So Daniel didn't blend in, and that could be traced back to his fear for God, a fear for a sovereign God. This is what fear for God resulted in, a superior work and an impeccable character. Really, the, the Christians should be the, the best employees, right? Best students. You know, they should be the, the best employers, the best bosses. Why? Because we all recognize that we have a master who is in heaven, right? And if Jesus Christ can't motivate you to work, I mean, who can? <laughs> right? I remember working at an apartment complex back in, in California, and one of the sweetest testimonies I heard from this apartment manager is that they always hired Christians because they knew what kind of work they would do. They hired from the, the seminary because they said, you know, I, I, can, I trust those guys. I know that, that they're going to give me good work. And one of the saddest testimonies that I ever heard was when an employer said, uh, I don't hire Christians anymore because I found them to be lazy. We need to have a fear of God that pushes us beyond laziness and mediocrity, right? It's not okay to just be okay when you can be better. <laughs> and the king knew better when he saw it. He sees Daniel. He's like, this, this guy stands out, you know, from the rest. Proverbs twenty two twenty nine says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And here Daniel stands before at least three to four kings. He's recognized for his work. There was something extraordinary about Daniel. But not everybody appreciated Daniel's superior work. Jealousy over Daniel's promotion ate the other men up as they sought for a way to attack his character. Look at verse 4. It says, Then the commissioners and satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. But they could not find, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. If you know anything about politics, uh, if you have a skeleton in your closet, it will be pulled out. <laughs> It's going to be pulled out one day. If you have an, an old social media post, that's going to come back to haunt you. If you've uh, been a part of a, a party in high school, college, pictures were snapped, that'll come back. But they couldn't find a bone. They were looking for skeletons. They couldn't find a bone in Daniel's closet. And, and think about this again. This is a guy who's lived 85 years or more. He's pushing 90 and in a 90-year history, you can't find anything on the guy? I mean, that's the kind of life that Daniel had. Spotless. They could find no ground for accusation against him. Nothing that he should have done that he didn't do. So there's no sins of omission, negligence. There's nothing that he shouldn't have done that he did do, so no corruption, sins of commission. And you have to recognize that their inspection of Daniel's life went far beyond his public duties because they were examining his, his private life and that's evidence from the fact that they were peering into his windows to see what he was doing. This guy prays three times a day. That had nothing to do with his government responsibilities. That was his private life. They were looking into his private life. What can we find there? Daniel's private life was scrutinized. What he did in his home. 
in his spare time off the clock. Could you open up your life like this? And if you have any sins, are those sins unconfessed sins? Sins that you haven't brought out to the light? Those who fear sovereign God recognize that their secrets are no secret to God. Everything is open and laid bare before his sight. Psalm 90 verse 8 says, Thou hast placed our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy presence. Psalm 139 verse 12 says, Even the darkness is not dark to thee. We read it earlier. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to thee. Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. God sees what we do, even when nobody else sees what we do. And the fact that you serve a sovereign God should make a difference in your life. That you know that the God is everywhere, everywhere present. My God is with me. What does that say about the way that we, we live? What if people snooped around in your trash cans to see what you were throwing out? Open up your deleted files to see what you've been looking at. Checked your purchase receipts. Viewed your programs that you've been watching. Overheard what you've been listening to. Would they say what they said about Daniel? We will not find any ground of accusation. We can't find anything. What a wonderful testimony of a life, right? Oh God, God, help us to live lives of integrity. Help us to live lives like this. I pray that that could be said of all of our lives. We won't find anything against this guy except in the law of his God. And when they couldn't find and attack him where he was dirty, they'd attack him where he was clean. <laughs> That's where they go. Just like if we can't find any dirt on him, we'll, we'll attack him where he's clean. We'll attack him in the, the, the law of his God. And, and I love the fact that this is the, the place that they have to go. We'll, we'll have to attack him in his integrity. We'll have to attack him in his righteousness. And I love also that it's this personal relationship that it speaks about him with his God. His God. It's not just God, it's his God, his personal God. It's the God of Daniel. And his character was in direct relationship to the God that he served. The gods of the Persians and Babylonians didn't produce character, but the God of Israel did. And he wasn't like the rest of them. Daniel didn't blend in. He set himself apart. And if you have a fear of a sovereign God, you will set yourself apart. It'll set yourself apart for the Lord. If you have a fear of a sovereign God, your life doesn't blend in. Number two, if you have fear of a sovereign God, your integrity doesn't bend over. Take a look at verse six. It says, then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. You know, gotta, gotta start with a little, little butter, right? All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together. King, we've been talking about you. All of us, we've all gotten together and, and you just became the, the, the topic of conversation. All of us have been talking about you. We've consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked, Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. And in contrast to Daniel's consistency of character and firm resolve, you have this group of, of governors who are willing to bend the truth, you know, because uh, here they say that all the, all the high officials have gathered together. That's a lie. How do we know that? Because Daniel wasn't included on this. <laughs> Daniel didn't agree to this. 
So they're, they're willing to bend the truth and then the, the king is willing to bend reality to think of himself as like the, the answer to life's problems. Yeah, I think, I think if everybody focuses attention on me for a month, things will be better around here. Yeah, that actually sounds like a good idea to me. It's a pushover king. It doesn't take much to convince him to give in. The governor's given a falsehood. The king gives in the flattering. And the two often go hand in hand, don't they? Falsehood and flattering. Let me help you out here. If there's something that somebody tells you that sounds too good to be true, it likely is. (laughs) It likely is. And this is exactly where they go in this section. You know, King, everybody's been talking about you, and you're the answer to all of our problems. Just flattery. And we know that it's it's wrong. You know that it's, like I said, at least Daniel didn't agree to this, but, but here they go. Everybody's talking about it. And this is the way to, to unite this kingdom. I know you're, you're new here, king, and you want to organize the kingdom. You've got these 120 satraps to do your job, to, to organize and bring unity to the kingdom. But, but king, we've been talking, and the answer to unity is right here in our face. You are the answer to all unity here in the kingdom. It's, it's only you. And what they intend to feed the king is an outright lie. And why do they do it? For selfish gain, to protect themselves, because they're blinded by jealousy, out of racial discrimination, we find that later on in verse 13. They wanted to, to protect their own positions and actually bring God into this. And, and you, you, don't, you don't do things like this if you have a true fear of, of God. You don't do this. You don't, you, don't, you don't make silly rules that people would pray to somebody else besides the, the true God. You don't, you don't mess with a God like this if you have a true fear of him. But here it is, the... The king falls for the flattering. And basically, these leaders suggest that the Darius should be a, a king for a month. God for a month. God for a month. Many kings believe themselves to be gods. If uh, we look into history, there were many men who claimed to be gods. Pharaohs claimed to be gods. Caesars claimed to be gods. Herod accepted the claim to be a god. People looked for gods to come down in the form of men back in Acts chapter 14. It says the gods have become like men and come down to us. According to, to Quintus Curtius, a, a biographer of uh, Alexander the Great, the, the Persians worshipped their kings among the gods. So this was an acceptable practice. In addition to that, the governors weren't suggesting that, you know, we, we don't recognize any other gods, but we're just saying we're going to give all attention to you for a month. I mean, that's all we're saying. You know, it's not that you're going to eliminate all the other gods. You're just, you're just going to be elevated for a month, you know, like the employee for the month. It's, it's you. You're the god for the month. And also remember, Darius is interested in, like I said, securing the stability of the nation. And he gives into this flattery. Like I said, if, if somebody tells you something that sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Proverbs 29 verse 5 says, A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps. Proverbs 26, 28 says, A lying tongue hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin. And Psalm 5 verse 9 says, There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. But the lie sounds better than the truth, and the king takes it in whole. What made this so dangerous was the royal edicts of the Persian kings couldn't be changed. The law of the Medes and the Persians couldn't be changed. We find the same law referred to in the book of of Esther when uh, King Ahasuerus made uh, use of this law three times, a law that couldn't be changed. And elsewhere in history, you find mention made of, of this law. Uh, there's another king, Darius III, 
uh, sentenced, uh, he sentenced a man to death. We find this in history. And immediately he repented of it. He sentenced him to death according to this law, immediately regretted it, but there was nothing that he could do. It says, immediately he repented, blamed himself as having greatly erred, but it was not possible to undo what was done by royal authority. So these, these satraps are sneaky. It's like they, they get him to sign into law something that he can't change. It's, it's not to give him control for a month. It's to take control from him for a month. That's what it's intended to do. We're not giving you control. We're taking control away that you would sign into law this edict. They didn't give him a chance to think. I mean, actually, the, uh, the way that they, they designed these laws is like, you know, if we make a law that can't be changed, it should make you think long and hard about making a law in the first place. It was actually designed to be a protection for the kings. But now it's like no time to think about it. Quick decision. Quick decision. Everybody wants me to be a God. I mean, why don't I just, you know, got to give the people what they want, you know? I mean, this, it's only for a month. I mean, what's the great harm in that anyway? But this is what they were counting on. They were counting on the king to give in the flattery. And they're also counting on, listen to this, they were counting on Daniel not to be like them. They're, they're counting on Daniel to be a, a man of integrity in order for this plan to work. That's the only way this works. If Daniel continues to do what he's always done. So if we can't get him where he's dirty, let's get him where he's clean. We, we know he's a man of integrity. We know that he's dedicated to his God. Let's get him there. That's where we can get him. And the whole plan hinges on the fact that Daniel can't refrain from praying for a month. That's what it all hinges on. What, what if somebody uh, made that kind of plan for you? <laughs> Would they be able to count on you being so committed to your prayers that you wouldn't refrain from praying for a month? I mean, here, Daniel doesn't refrain for a day. Now, I just want to introduce you to this third point. We'll develop it next week, actually two weeks from now. But if you fear a sovereign God, your character doesn't buckle under. Look at verse 10. It says, now Daniel knew that the document was signed. When, he, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber. He had windows open toward Jerusalem. And listen to this. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had been doing previously. Nothing's changed. How important is your devotional life to you? All he had to do to save his skin was to refrain from praying for a month, or at least hide it for a month. Didn't have to pray to a false god. All he had to do was refrain from praying to the true one. But both his, his pasture and his words made it abundantly clear that this is exactly what he was engaged in. I'm engaged in prayer. I'm not hiding that. I'm not going to hide who I am because it, it, it becomes dangerous, because there's there's some kind of penalty attached to it now. And it's important to note that Daniel didn't pray in defiance of the injunction. It's not like, oh, they're going to tell me I can't pray. Well, this is what I'm going to do. It's not in defiance. This, this prayer was not a public des- demonstration of protest. He, he wasn't trying to just, I'm just going to exercise my rights, make a statement. He, he didn't get on the busiest corner that he could find to, to make a protest. He's not doing this in defiance. He's just being consistent. I'm just going to do what I've always done. I'm not ramping it up. I'm just going to be consistent. He's not doing this in in response to the injunction. It's not like he began to pray. Oh, God, I know I need you now. They're after me, God. Now I I got to pray now. That's not what it is. It's not in defiance. It's not in response. It's in spite of it, in spite of the injunction. The injunction doesn't make a difference. 
Verse 10 says he just continued, as he had been doing previously. And what strikes us about this is that it's so routine. I'm just going to do what I've always done. Nothing's changed. I, I, I just, it's just on cruise control. Like, this is what I've always done. Why, why would I stop now? Would you refrain, like I said, from praying if it meant your life? Daniel says, I'd, I'd rather die than live without prayer. I'd rather die than live without prayer. Why? Because he feared God more than men. And next week, we'll get Daniel out of the lion's den, but... This week, I wanted to do enough to get him out of the children's books, all right? <laughs> this, this is more than a children's story, okay? And the point of the story is that the God of Daniel is to be feared, and these commissioners have no idea who they're messing with. This is the God who turns furnaces into recreation rooms. This is the, the God who turns kings into cattle. This is the God who, who writes a death sentence on your wall in the middle of your party. Are you prepared to deal with a God like this? God is sovereign and he always wins. He always wins. And these governors are going to quickly find out who's really in charge. Jesus says in Luke 12, I say to you, don't be afraid of those who kill the body. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast you into hell. And if you're an unbeliever who's here, you need to, you need to fear this God. You need to fear the sovereign one. You found trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. The only, the only place that you find safety from this God is in this God. You get that? The only place of safety from him is to him. That's where we go to for safety. And for those of you who are trusting in Christ, do you, do you stand on him in the day of adversity? Do you fear God more than a group of people not including you? Your coworkers betraying you, your family not speaking to you, your enemies persecuting you? Some of you will recognize the name Polycarp. According to church history, he was a bishop of Smyrna and a disciple of the apostle John. And in the year 155 AD, he fell into the hands of the Romans. And the usual test that was applied to Christians was that they had to call Caesar the emperor, their Lord. That's how they distinguished true Christians from the false ones. You know, if you're really a Christian, you're not going to call Caesar your Lord. That's how they, they kind of smoked him out. Now he's before this Roman council. Polycarp was required to, to venerate the Caesar. You know, give honor to Caesar as your Lord. But he was firm in his refusal. The council said, I have wild beasts. If you refuse, I'll throw you to them. Polycarp says, send for him. <laughs> if you despise the wild beast, I'll send you to the fire, said the council. Swear and I will release you to uh, curse Christ. Curse Christ, I'll release you. This is how Polycarp responds. He says, 86 years I have served Christ and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? You threaten me with fire that burns for an hour and then is quenched, but you know not of the fire of the judgment to come and the fire of eternal punishment. Bring what you will. <laughs> 86 years have I served Christ about the same age as Daniel. Some of you, even in your, your older years, may be in for the, the biggest, uh, biggest fight of your life. Who knows, God might have been preparing you all your life long so that you could stand in the day of adversity now. God wins in the end. He's to be feared. Do you have this kind of confidence in God? And I also want to remind you of this. 
is that in uh, the example that we find in, in Daniel, we have the supreme example in Christ himself. Over in uh, the book of Isaiah chapter 50, it, it predicts what would happen in Jesus's own life. Find in Isaiah chapter 50, I'll go ahead and just start at verse five, Isaiah chapter 50, starting at verse five. It says, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting for the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I am not disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord, that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Who, who is the perfect example of standing in the face of adversity? It was Jesus Christ. And he did that for our salvation, amen? Over in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16, just a couple more verses and we'll close. Matthew chapter 16 and verse Verse 2, over in Matthew uh, 16. Actually, I'm sorry, verse 21, Matthew 16, verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Over in Matthew 20 and verse 18 speaks about the same thing. Actually, I'll start at verse 17. It says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. You know what uh, distinguished Jesus from, uh, from Daniel? Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. Jesus walked into it. <laughs> Jesus walked into it. And he did that for our salvation, amen? He's the one that we can look to. And I pray that you'll have that same kind of fortitude in the day of your adversity, that you would have a greater fear of God than anyone else, amen? I wanna close our time of prayer with a, with a prayer from John Calvin. Listen to this. Grant, almighty God, since thou hast reconciled us to thyself by the precious blood of thy son, that we may not be our own, but devoted to thee in perfect obedience and may consecrate ourselves entirely to thee. May we offer our bodies and souls in sacrifice and be rather prepared to suffer a hundred deaths than to decline from thy true and sincere worship. Grant us especially to exercise ourselves in prayer, to fly to thee every moment, and to commit ourselves to thy fatherly care, that thy spirit may govern us to the end. Do thou defend and sustain us until we are collected into that heavenly kingdom, which thy only begotten son has prepared for us by his blood. And all God's people said, amen. amen.